So we are talking about gender differences. We're actually talking about sexuality in the brain today. I think Dr. French wanted to be politically correct or something. <laughs> so let's start with, oh, first of all, what's the rule when I'm speaking? Absolutely. Get up and move around anytime you want to. If this is a bell curve, 50% of you learn best if you're standing. So feel free to get up anytime. Somebody said to me the other day, but I, I don't want to get up and disturb you. You won't. I'm not visual. Unless you make a lot of noise, I won't even notice you got up. My three sons loved that. All right, let's go. Top left. How many of you have done these before? Okay, a few of you. All right, they're just little brain puzzles, whole-brained, with your left hemisphere. You're reading the, hopefully, the letters that make the words. With your right hemisphere, you're looking at the position, and it doesn't matter if they go forwards or backwards. The brain can read either way. So sometimes I put things backwards just to give your brain a little bit more stimulation. All right, top left. Lace underwear, fabulous. It's usually a male brain that gets that. Uh, second on the left. Okay, do we have some right-left confusion here? Somebody could not wait to get to foreplay. <clears throat> and I don't care if we go back and forth. Second on the left. Any ideas? Don't tell me I have to tell you what I was thinking. Um, okay, a double-barreled shotgun, is that what you said? That's exactly what I was thinking. I have no idea if it's a compliment that your brain thought what my brain was thinking, but it is to me. It's always a little discouraging when no brain gets what my brain thought of. All right, third on the left. It's a game. I'm sure you play them. You know, everything has to line up in each row and Sudoku works or Sudoku, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, bottom left. Fly by what? Night, fly by night, good. We've already done the top right unless somebody's dying to say it again. Uh, second on the right, think direction. North Star, good. Third on the right. Cubic zirconia, good. And fourth on the right. The word is right. Right between what? The eyes. Good job. Now, if some of you have only done that once, this is your first time, you've already laid down a piece of software in your brain for brain benders. And the next time we do another set, it'll be easier and easier and easier. 
The takeaway is be careful what you do once. Many times I hear young people say, I don't think that's probably good for me long term, but I want to I want to try it once. Be careful. You have already laid down a piece of software if you've done it once. And therefore, it will be much easier for you to do it a second time. So this whole visit, I'm talking about pretty much gender differences. And people say to me sometimes, if I learn more about gender differences, will they go away? <laughs> that would be no. And I personally don't want them to go away. I mean, life would be very boring if we only had one gender or if all our brains were alike. So I don't want them to go away. But over time, sometimes we forget how much fun they are and we start getting irritated about the differences. And I'd like you to avoid that. This is what I call the Who I Am Pyramid. It represents the five key brain function pieces that I think every brain needs to know about itself if you want to use your brain by design. And across the bottom is the empathizing, systemizing, or 50-50 brain. And we have brand new research about the 50-50 brain. When I was here last year, I mentioned that, and somebody came up to me and said, what, what do you know about the 50-50 brain? I went, very little. We're doing research on it, but very little. We have some new information, so we'll talk about that. So whatever else human beings are, they are relational, spiritual, and sexual. And that has nothing to do with whether or not people are engaging in sexual behaviors. We are sexual beings, and our sense of ourselves and how we relate to the world and others uh, comes from our sexuality, if you will. So contrary to, to what many people think, your brain is your primary sex organ. Everything starts and ends in the brain. And if you don't get that, you're going to have a rough ride. So males who have erectile dysfunction, unless they have some problems cardiovascularly, it's all about what's going on in the brain. And for a female who cannot achieve orgasm, everything else being equal, it's all about what's going on in her brain. And your sense of sexuality is going to impact every single thing you do your entire life while you're on this planet. I'm sure if you've studied biology, you know that human beings are a combination of nature plus nurture. I didn't know that when I was at Loma Linda University taking nursing in the late 1800s. We... Um, Thank you. <laughs> we knew about genetics, genes and chromosomes, something about them, but we didn't even know that much about them back then, and we knew virtually nothing about epigenetics. The inheritance that comes to you 
from your biological ancestors back three or four generations that has nothing to do with genes and chromosomes except that sometimes it can impact whether they get expressed or not. But those memories are filed on the little protein strands in the nucleus of your cells. And depending on how your ancestors behaved you often will experience a push toward a behavior and you have no idea where that came from. And then your choice is when you get this urge to ask yourself, is this really something I want to do once? Is it something I want to incorporate in my life? And sometimes young people say, well, I just felt like I needed to do it. Well, good. Every time you feel like you need to eat, do you? Highly unlikely. So the prefrontal lobes are designed to help you make judgments about urges and whether or not you want to follow through on them. And you have to choose whether or not you want to follow through. So this is now what we know creates a human being and, and we used to think it's pretty straightforward. You know, males are males and females are females. And it's not nearly as straightforward as we thought. And in the last few months, we've gotten a whole bunch of research that makes, it real, makes me realize that it's way more complex. When we talk about gender differences, usually we talk about them in three general areas. Primary secondary, and tertiary. Most of the time I talk about primary. What's your brain doing? It involves external and internal sex organs, uh, differences in bone structure, whether or not you have the clear XX or XY uh, complement, uh, how you hear. Males don't hear in the same way that females do. And if we... <laughs> If we had time this morning, maybe we'll do that a little bit tomorrow night because we've got PET scan studies about how males don't hear female voices and uh, the difference in how we see. We were having a lot of fun, relatively speaking, before the program started, trying to get the slides up there without a turquoise background. And I was teasing some of the men who were helping uh, they have very few P cells in the retina, P for perception of color and texture. And I asked him, what color is that? And you get the deer in the headlights look, because turquoise doesn't register in the male brain. Almost without exception, turquoise is not one of the colors. So there's a lot of difference. And then the secondary differences play off of these and probably are quite innate but then you begin to get over to this part, and there are innate differences, but socialization seems to play more of a part when you get to tertiary. So you know, I just I prefer to talk about primary. So it would appear that in most cases, life is sexually transmitted. When in, in relation to human beings would that not occur? Absolutely. If you're doing a sperm and an egg in a test tube, um, I don't know, maybe the test tube thinks it's having sex, but 
that's really not the way we think about sexually transmitting life. Every brain starts out looking the same. It's virtually identical. And unless there is a conversion process that takes place, a chemical bath, all of those brains will end up being what we call an empathizing brain, which has far more connections in parts of the brain that have to do with communication and far more connections that have to do with identifying, recognizing, and processing emotions. So I'm sure in biology you've seen these. Here's the X chromosome, and here's the Y chromosome. I find it interesting, both the Y chromosome and the sperm are really tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the X chromosome and an ovum. I had a lady tell me one time, it's just amazing how that little minuscule bit of, you know, whatever can cause so many problems on this planet. (laughs) Which, of course, was her brain's opinion. So there's a, a comedian in, um, in America that I really enjoy listening to, and he talks a lot about male-female differences, and this is what he said. Read with me. Those with only one... Read with me aloud. <laughs> Those with only one X can only figure out about half of what those with two Xs are saying, and that's if they're even listening. And research is showing that's pretty much on the mark. So we'll probably, we'll probably talk a little bit about that Thursday night. So the typical female pattern is two of these. Long, worm-like things. I think that's relatively unattractive, but nobody asked me. And the typical male pattern is one of these and one of these. Now, you come to the egg and the sperm, and that's where I have a lot of fun, because the ovum, and this is an electron microscopy picture of an egg, it's the largest cell in the body. And I'm sure you know that when a woman is born, she has all the eggs she's ever going to have, so that it's critical that she takes care of her brain and body so she doesn't damage those eggs if she ever wants to have a biological child. Because sometimes you start your child off with more problems than he or she would would have to begin life with based on what the types of behaviors that the female has exhibited that damage the eggs. And then you've got the sperm. See this pitiful little thing here? I've blown that up a lot, or you wouldn't even see it on the slide. It is the smallest cell in the body. I just find these little trivias that we're learning about so fascinating. So there you have it, only this is much smaller. And, um, you know, they're active little things. They uh, all want to get to the goal, which is somehow to get inside this humongous cell. And uh, pretty much it's the first one who gets there, gets in, all things being equal. There are people who try to manipulate uh, pregnancy by 
changing the pH of the vaginal fluid, for example, because male, um, the sperm that's carrying the Y is sometimes a little more sensitive to environmental conditions. I mean, it, after all, it's just so small. And so if you change the pH of the vagina and you really want a boy or a girl, sometimes you can actually manipulate what happens. I think it's a lot of work, but it can be done. So when everything goes right in this rather complex process, the brain is going to develop and template the way culture, society, church, family, people expect it to template. And you will get either primarily an empathizing brain or primarily a systemizing brain, although nobody's ever 100% of either. We're all a combination, but it's the, the percentage rates that turn the brain, make the brain systemizing versus empathizing. But stuff rarely goes flawlessly on this planet. And so there can be lots of variations, way more than we ever thought of, even two years ago. Some brains template as half and half, and those are what we used to just refer to as the 50-50 brain. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that that is an XY combination, but it's half and half. So the individuals will have one ovary and one testicle. And the brain will be half empathizing and half systemizing. Somebody said to me the other day, well, how would you know that? And I go, you probably wouldn't. Because people with who are 50-50 usually pick one gender way to dress. And the only time you might really want to investigate that is if you're thinking about partnering with them and having children. Because we don't really know how fertile uh, this 50-50 brain is going to be. And, you know, you're not going to walk up to somebody and say, you know, you're kind of cute. I think I'd like to date you. Do you have two testicles? (laughs) Or you're not going to walk up to a woman and say, you know, I'm interested in you. Um, I'm thinking about having kids. You sure you got two ovaries and a uterus? But this is, uh, there are a lot of variations, and there are more opportunities for variations in the systemizing brain, which is aligned with the male brain, because more has to happen to move it from the default position to what we call a systemizing brain. And the brain doesn't always match the body or the chromosomes. And that will depend how much of the hormones that are required to successfully template a brain are present in the mother. So you can have an XY male and an XX female, but the mother's body is just loaded with androgen, and that little XX will look like a baby boy. And they'll they'll raise it as a boy. Only problem comes, puberty, hmm, nothing changes. And then they'll do some, you know, 
x-ray work and uh, oh, well there's no prostate and there's no sperm development but here this kid was raised as a male her entire life because there was so much androgen present during gestation and the reverse can happen xy male and an xx female but there's not enough hormone and that can sometimes happen when the mother is very very stressed during pregnancy Ellen G. White wrote a lot about how important it is to have a healthy, safe, comfortable, nurturing, affirming pregnancy for the sake of that fetus. And I watch families, let's say the girl gets pregnant, she's not married, and they kick her out. She ends up in some strange city in some home for unwed, unwed mothers. I don't want to think about what that's doing to her androgen levels and how that child is going to turn out. So in this case, he gets raised by, as if he's a little girl because he looks like a little girl. There wasn't enough hormone to create the body parts that you need. So here's what we call the gender-brain continuum. And up until last year... All you saw was these top two lines, pretty much. So now we know that certainly the XX complement is equated with a female brain and the XY with a male brain. But now we know what this 50-50 brain is. It's now called the intersex brain. Not empathizing, not systemizing, the intersex brain. I'm going to Holland I think this coming June, to talk to the the union teachers and pastors about this new information. Because it puts a different complexion on what we think of in terms of male and female. And now we know that you can have an XXX complement and an X0 complement. And all of that impacts how that female brain will express itself. And there's more variation uh, problems or options for variations in the systemizing brain. We now know that there are people with an XXY, XXXY, XXXXY, and some who are XY, but the Y is damaged. This now continues to include about 95% of the population. And we still don't know much about the 5% that aren't on here. But as the equipment gets more sophisticated for analyzing things, we should, maybe by next year, we'll know more about that 5%. Somebody usually comes up to me, even when I say that, because nobody ever hears everything, you know, I'll say something and their brain will take off on a tangent. And, you know, five minutes later, they'll clue back in. They are thinking about something else. And they'll come up to me and say, I want to know more about that 5%. I'll say, well, I can't tell you anything more about the 5%. I can just tell you it doesn't go on the continuum. Well, I want to know more. I said, well, so do I, but you're going to have to wait. Well, I think I'm married to one. How do you know if you don't even know much about the 5%? might be something entirely different. It might be one of these other variations. 
So nobody is ever 100% systemizing or 100% empathizing. Uh, McGill University in Montreal has done a lot of this testing, and I love what they find. When they are doing psychological assessments to see whether a brain is male or female, they always get two scores. So the quintessential XX empathizing brain, you know, who was born wearing pink and so on and so forth, uh, might be a 9-1, nine, 9 empathizing, 1 systemizing. After all, she can usually get herself dressed eventually. But the systemizing brain, then, is very much the opposite. So the quintessential male brain, some people are saying that Asperger's syndrome, which is now being uh, combined with autism at the high-functioning end, may be nothing more than an extreme systemizing brain with very little of the empathy qualities that you see in the empathizing brain. So they might be a one-nine, you know, one empathizing and nine systemizing. So let's talk a little bit about romantic love because that's one of the things that happens to people as or thinks it happens to them. Romantic love is a hormonal tsunami. If you can remember that, you're light years ahead of people of most people on this planet. That's all it is. You meet somebody and you think, oh, fabulous, the most wonderful person in the world. I want to spend my life with them. You're just having a hormonal tsunami. <laughs> you need to factor in a few more things to decide whether you really do want to spend the rest of your life with the person who's giving you palpitations. The chemical responsible for that initial high, and unfortunately, you know, Hollywood is just a disaster in this arena, talking about romantic love. You know, a couple of an actor and an actress, or we just need to call them actors, two actors are filming and they're doing romantic scenes and they suddenly take a liking to each other. You know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are examples of that. And so what do they do? They think, oh, I'm in love with this wonderful person. I have to divorce my spouse and marry them. Well, usually doesn't last. The jury's still out on Pitt and Jolie, we'll see. But the chemical responsible for that feeling is called phenylethylalanine, or PEA for short, and I refer to it as the pea brain chemical. <laughs> it functions very much like amphetamines, which you know are is a is a substance that makes you high, turns you on. And you can become very dependent, if not outright addicted, to PEA. And the symptoms that PEA create in your brain and body include this rush of euphoria and energy. Oh, I remember when my middle son, he was 13, he came home, he knew he was who he was going to marry. I told his father, I'm going to need to take some aspirin. It's going to be a long adolescence for this kid. The other two didn't start quite that early. 
rush of euphoria and energy. I mean, he was bouncing off the walls. This is the most wonderful woman who ever hit the planet. I'm not even going to describe her to you. Nothing. I don't think she was the most wonderful woman that even hit our home, much less the planet. But trouble sleeping, obsessive about their love object, can't think in, can't concentrate in class, can't do their homework, you know, thinking about them all the time. Increased heart rate, distraction, lack of objective cognitive thinking. You're not thinking when you're in the bonds of romantic love. You are not thinking. Just remember that. The brain cannot sustain a phenylethylalanine high. It is too intense. And for many people, it peters out about six months later, sometimes less than that. And most of you are aware of that. You met somebody that you thought was the salt of the earth, go home for summer vacation, come back to school in the fall, and you look at them and you go, what was I thinking? There's nothing going on here. But it can last a little longer occasionally even longer than 48 months, but usually that's when people are doing bi-coastal romances. And so they don't see each other very much. And, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder for a shot of phenylethylalanine. And so sometimes it can, it can last a little longer. But then it disappears, and more objective cognitive thought returns, hopefully unless the brain is already involved in another search for PEA. And the person you thought was just magical turned out to be a rather regular human being. And human beings are wonderful. But there's no prince or princess that's going to stay looking and acting like that the rest of your life. So get it. The couple may not make it past the PEA stage. Often doesn't. That's why people typically go through several romances before they finally settle on who they want to spend the rest of their life with. And I'm telling you, the person you think you want to spend, that you want to wake up next to every morning for the rest of your life when you're in a pea brain state has nothing in common in most cases with the person that you want to wake up next to for the rest of your life when PEA fades. If they become sexually active, they may potentiate PEA or they may compensate for PEA fading with the chemicals that are triggered during sexual activity, especially if you have an orgasm. And unfortunately, males usually get to orgasm. Females rarely do, although if they like the guy, they pretend, which is really unhelpful. <laughs> because rather than learning how to be a really good lover, he thinks he's doing really well. <laughs> <clears throat> and she can be doomed to a life of non-orgasm sex. And I'm telling you, Without orgasm and all of those beautiful chemicals that are secreted that last three seconds, 
But without them, sex is just messy and time-consuming. And many, many men wonder how come their wives are not interested in sexual activity. Well, would you be if you got no reward? So it's really important that couples figure out how to have a really good sex life once they're married, or it's going to be kind of a dry 50 years. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. No pun intended. <laughs> well, you know, I have, a, I have my energy advantage in the right frontal lobe. No language there. So I'm always reaching across the corpus callosum to the frontal left, to Brokaw's area, to find words. And sometimes I say what I'm thinking and didn't intend to say that. <laughs> okay, so... If you get addicted to PEA, which a number of people do, then the minute it begins to fade, you're out of that relationship. You find a reason to break up. Because you're in the relationship, just like any other addictive behavior, for the phenylethylalanine. And these kinds of individuals go from one relationship to another and often very brief relationships because as PEA begins to fall, it falls slowly. But if you're addicted to something, then you need larger and larger amounts of the substance to get the same hit. And so the minute PEA starts to fall off, I'm out of here. Got to find somebody else that will give me that excitement and that PEA. And if they marry... One, if not both, are at high risk for extramarital affairs because they've never switched from PEA to oxytocin. And oxytocin is the chemical that bonds you together and helps you develop unconditional love, which doesn't happen as long as PEA is involved. And they want that romantic love, hormonal tsunami, And so they move from person to person, or one or both of them become addicted to pornography because pornography can trigger PEA. It has nothing to do with a real relationship, but you can get addicted to pornography in a flat nanosecond, and it is an ugly addiction to get rid of. If the couple has stayed together long enough, and probably been pretty much not involved in sexual activity while they're getting to know each other's brains, because eventually if you live long enough, you know, you guys are not going to be able to get it up. I don't care what you do. And as the vagina changes, it's not going to get very lubricated, so it's probably not going to be a big part of your life over a hundred or over the age of 54. I mean, it happens for different couples. And so if you are not bonded with oxytocin to the brain you have partnered with, it's not going to be pretty. So sexual activity, once you have committed to each other and uh, hopefully signed on the dotted line, What's the reason for saying that? Because you change after you sign on the dotted line. Every brain does. 
you never begin to act out your subconsciously absorbed expectations of your role in a partnership until after you sign on the dotted line. Brain just doesn't go there. So I've known people who've lived together for 15 years and uh, by coastal relationship, still pumping PEA every couple months when they get together. And then they decide to live in the same place and they get married. And two weeks later, they're at each other's throat and they're divorced in two months because their brain got into the pattern of what happens before you sign on the dotted line. And well-meaning but unenlightened people will tell young people, you don't change after you get married. You know, it's pretty much the way it is when you're dating. No, that is not true. Some things don't change. The ability to do whole brain nurturing, if you choose to maintain that. But yes, your brain does change. And that's one reason you need to get to know the family of the person that you're thinking about marrying. Because that's the environment that person came from. And if it's very different from yours, there can be all kinds of problems because your brain is going, oh, it's Easter, we're supposed to do this. And the other brain is going, we would never do that at Easter. Are you nuts? Because their environment was so different. So once you sign on the dotted line, you're committed to each other, and you do good sexual activity. You know, that's the number one problem with most couples is they're not, they say, we're not compatible sexually. Well, hello, you had to learn how to drive a car. People think just because they got sex organs, they know how to do sexual behaviors. No, they don't. But if you work on it, you get oxytocin secreted instead of PEA, although, you know, the first few years you probably are still having some PEA. I think that's the only reason people really have children. I mean, can you imagine having children if you didn't have PEA? I mean, it is a lot of work. To raise a child. And I think part of that um, PEA that lasts maybe even up to three or four years is to help people procreate. Otherwise, they look around and go, I'm not going there. <laughs> this is way too much work. We're going to have a we're going to have a fine time, just the two of us. And some people really need to stop there. I will tell you that there are some couples who would do a child a disservice if they ever had one because they don't have their act together. And as oxytocin rises, so does dopamine, which is involved with every addictive behavior we've ever studied. And that's what keeps you bonded year after year after year through the ups and the downs, the goods and the bads, the health and the unhealth. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, uh, we learned in Canada, that the child is father to the man. The child is father to the woman as well. So how you parent, how you engage in love relationships at adulthood has a lot to do with what happened to you as a child. Every human being needs unconditional love as best as we can do it, along with a lot of nurturing touch, multiple studies, Babies in orphanages die without enough touch. 
So if you received reliable, unconditional love from your parents growing up, that means when you made a mistake, you didn't feel like your parents no longer loved you because you screwed up. But they may not have liked what you did, but you were clear they still loved you. And not everybody has the benefit of that. If you received reliable, unconditional love and lots of human touch, then you probably, as a teenager and an adult, are not what we call needy. Needy people latch on to somebody because they are so desperate for love and touch. And um, that's not a good relationship necessarily. So if you didn't get this, then start reparenting yourself now, raising your emotional intelligence, especially if you ever plan to have a child. Lots of double standards. Unfortunately, males are told to go sow their wild oats, and women are protected. There's such, there's such censure, even in today's society where, you know, promiscuity is not as bad as it used to be. Uh, the problem is that the very gender that society winks at their sexual behaviors is the gender that's far more conditioned by their past sexual behaviors. Every time you have sexual activity with another individual, you create cellular memory for that person. And if you have multiple cellular memories created from multiple partners, it's going to be very difficult to have a monogamous relationship. And that may be one of the reasons that although women sometimes have extramarital affairs, not usually at nearly at the rate at which males do. And in some cultures, and this just blows my mind, as I travel around the world, in some cultures, women are supposed to look as sexual as possible to make the male who is with her um, proud of her and make other males wish they had what he had. But they're not supposed to be sexual. They're supposed to look like it. Now, how do you think that goes across in a human brain? So we also have a lot of love-sex confusion. Unfortunately, men will tell women that they love them when they don't love them, not with an unconditional looking toward partnering love. They just want sex. And they know how to get it because women often have sex if they're looking for love. So somebody tells them, I love you, and they'll go to bed with them, and that's unfortunate. Or the female is looking for attention because she didn't get enough growing up, and this is the girl that will go to bed with all, almost any guy on the campus who will ask her because it's attention, and then brag about it to the other girls, trying to make herself feel better about herself if that's who you're dating, fellows. Do not walk, run. <laughs> that will not be a good basis for a long-term relationship. Especially, are you thinking about when you're dating somebody? You know, this potentially is the woman who's going to be the mother of my children. Does she have the characteristics that I want to nurture 
my children, our children. You never think that way if you're in the midst of a pea brain episode. And so sometimes males will get a little macho and want what they want when they want it, which can lead to date rape and other problems. There isn't a male on this planet who can't control his sexual behaviors if he wants to because sexual behaviors begin where? In the brain. And some women, from fear of abandonment, okay, because they didn't have the kind of unconditional love and affection and touch during childhood that they needed to nurture them, they will violate their boundaries just because they're so desperate that they don't want this person to leave them. What would I do if, if I stopped dating him? Well, there are billions of fish in the sea, and many fishermen throw back the first several they catch. So pay attention to that. In terms of sexual attraction, <laughs> this is uh, interesting. I wish I'd known this when I was younger. Males decide in about seven whole seconds when they look at, a, at another individual if they want to get better acquainted. Seven whole section, seconds. That's about the time it takes if you're trying to multitask to move from one task to another, which is why texting while you're driving is a way to meet your maker much sooner than you intended. Uh, males in general are a little more assertive. Yes, they have a bigger part of the brain devoted to assertiveness. They fall in love faster. 25% of them think they're already in romantic love by the time they have the first date. It's all pea brain, folks. They are attracted first and foremost to the woman's figure, then her face, and then how she's dressed. So women that run around in bikini bathing suits to church on Sabbath morning um, don't have their act together. So the, here's, the, here's the difference. In the female brain, she's really not sexually attracted initially. She's attracted very romantically. And when she looks at somebody, she thinks, boy, just give me some time with that guy. I can turn him into somebody really special. And so all of a sudden, he feels under pressure to be different from whom he who he really is. No, you'd never want to try to change somebody, women, because if you do, they'll only go back to who they were. I mean, you can, you can put a coat on a tiger and make him look like a leopard, but he hasn't changed his basic coloring. So you try to make somebody change, and they may do it temporarily. It will not last. They are attracted first to wealth. Does he look like he could make a good living? Uh, position, especially if you're already out of college and working, and how skillful they are. You know, women really don't want to marry a dork. They want to partner with somebody who's evidences some high level of skills in some arena or others. Uh, they notice clothes first, then eyes, and then the guy's physique, but that's a difference. So, we don't, we think this may be socialization because women are, are taught so often, you know, you need to be a virgin when you get married. Well, I think that's God's model because of cellular memory. But um, boys aren't 
taught that. So they, they got 10,000 young people together, 5,000 girls, 5,000 boys, and they gave them each a little thing with a button on it, and then they started showing them a variety of pictures designed to elicit feelings of sexuality. And they were to hit the button if they felt sexual. And the bottom line was, in most of the women looked at these pictures and never hit the button. Now, did they not hit the button because they really weren't feeling sexual or because they didn't want anybody to know they were because they thought they weren't supposed to be? We're not sure. But the man hit it every time, sometimes twice. <laughs> so this is what happens. You get married and you don't even know how to talk to each other about sexuality. You don't know how to say, you know, I feel good when you do this to me. Or and that doesn't feel as good. That's healthy coupling about sexuality. But boy, it's not always found. And so he's feeling really sexual. I mean, he can hardly eat at the reception. He can't wait to get her in bed. And so they get in bed, and she has really not learned to recognize when she feels sexual. And he's knocking himself out to turn her on, and she's lying there going, you know, this hotel needs the ceiling painted. <laughs> or something like that. And he feels really discouraged. And sometimes I tell couples, you'll do, your, you'll do yourself a favor not even to have sex on your wedding night. Just lie there and cuddle each other and hold each other and then go get a couple of good classes on how you do it. <laughs> now, there is a difference in the amount of, spa of space in the brain, uh, depending on whether you're male or female, devoted to sexual drive. And in the male brain, it's combined with a lot of assertiveness. And that's why males need to be really careful because it's really easy to get aggressive sexually if you don't have your act together. So the research shows that women will occasionally think about sexual activity. Um, I think it happens more often when she's partnered with somebody who's a really good lover. And he calls up in the middle of the afternoon and says, um, I'm coming home early tonight. And she actually might spend a few minutes thinking about how much fun it's going to be. But ordinarily, sex is not big on a woman's brain, unless she's tuned into Hollywood. Um, maybe on her hottest hormonal days. But males, oh my goodness, they've got two and a half times the space in the brain devoted to assertiveness, aggressiveness, and sexual activity. And, and sex thoughts cross their brains more than once a day. However, having said that, a male still has the choice whether this is a good time to continue thinking about sexual activity or whether I need to get busy and do something else. Because choosing to continually think sexual thoughts can certainly lead toward pornography because there isn't a woman alive that are going to meet your sexual pornographic fantasies. doesn't happen. So in the United States, this is one of the drawings of the male brain 
And you can see they've got a fair amount of space uh, devoted to sex. So take a look. I told you that men listen differently. Well, here's the listening particle. There's your attention span. Avoid uh, personal questions at all costs. Uh, look how much is devoted to uh, addictive behaviors, including television. Uh, here's ironing. Uh, there's the lame excuses gland. Um, it really should be renamed the do-nothing gland. Because males can actually sit there and do nothing. Women don't have a do-nothing gland. Uh, ability to drive uh, manual transmission, um, so on and so forth. Sports, um, domestic skills that can be developed. Um, the toilet aiming cell. Oh, I certainly learned that with my boys. I walked into the bathroom one afternoon. I didn't know anybody was in there. And there they are, 10, 11, and 12. And their game is to back up as far as they can and see if they can still hit the toilet. They couldn't. They were still trying. And there's the female brain. So there is the, the sex. Now, here's the footnote they put on this cartoon. Notice how closely connected the small sex cell is to the listening gland. Meaning, one of the biggest things a male can do to get his wife to respond is talk to her. And I mean using real words. You know, sometimes they think they're communicating when they just offer a few grunts or sighs. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real language, appreciative, nurturing language. A sense of direction neuron, we'll talk about that tonight. It's, it's pretty small. Uh, handbag, shoe coordination, telephone skills, um, chocolate center. Dark chocolate is good. We now know that it is actually a medicative treatment for people with PMS. It's got to be about 70% chocolate, but if your wife develops PMS, buy her lots of good quality chocolate. So the last slide is the bad news about marriage in America. Fewer and fewer women are choosing to marry, especially if they're Divorce, if they divorce or if their partner dies, they are not choosing to remarry. So after rather extensive research at University of California, San Francisco, the conclusions are that marriage is very beneficial for males. They tend to be healthier. They tend to live longer. And that's probably because in many marriages, the wife tries to pick up whatever it is he doesn't want to do. It is not so advantageous for females. 
unless they're young and they want children and they want two people to help raise them. So this is starting to raise all manner of questions about what is the quality of a marriage really like for the female? Many men blithely go on. You know, she's taken care of everything around the house. And all of a sudden, uh, one morning, she says, I'm leaving you. And he is just gobsmacked. How did this happen? He'd been totally unaware of the fact that this marriage was not working for her. So the biblical model is that a male brain and a female brain get together, marry, have children, live happily ever after. I believe if you know what you're doing and you take the time to make your best choice and wait to get married till you're at least 30 when your prefrontal lobes are done, you probably have a good shot at having a wonderful life. Many people marry before their corpus callosum is done. Forget their prefrontal lobes. So just slow down. Learn as much as you can about sexuality, human sexuality, um, high-level wellness living. Uh, Raise your emotional intelligence and make a thoughtful, non-pea brain choice about a life partner. Thank you.